Hello and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 34, The Birds of Norfolk Island. Well, hello and welcome back to the show. Today we're keeping with that classic Bird of the Week tradition of me promising to cover a topic in the last episode and then failing to deliver. I'm just so changeable. No, what happened is I was midway through writing the pigeon episode, I promise I was, when I was approached to deliver a talk about the birds of Norfolk Island. And I thought to myself, why limit my audience to the people who turn up on the day when with just a few tweaks I could bring it to all of you now? So, What follows is a slightly extended version of my brief talk on the birds of Norfolk Island. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Hello, my name is Nathan and I work at the department... I'm just going to cut in here. You don't need to know what my day job is. I should have cut that intro from the app. I'll just just do it in post. But my hobby is writing about birds. Some of you may receive the weekly email or heard the non-weekly podcast. I'd like to thank, insert anonymous name, for inviting me here today to talk about the birds of Norfolk Island. I'll try to keep it contained. Now, maybe the first thing we should do is figure out where the heck Norfolk Island is. Norfolk lies in the Pacific Ocean. It is a territory administered by the Australian government and has a population of around 2,100 people. It is an isolated, subtropical island, about 1,700 kilometres from Sydney, Australia, 1,100 kilometres from Auckland, and 875 kilometres from New Caledonia. So, it's a fair way south from all those exotic, tropical islands of the Pacific, but a good deal north of New Zealand. It's right in the middle of a big old empty patch of sea. Norfolk Island mostly consists of an elevated plateau bound by cliffs, except for a small area of coastal flats, and the two main mountains, Mount Pitt and Mount Bates, that are both a little over 300 metres above sea level. Geographically, the island sits on a rather odd piece of continental crust. It is known as Zealandia and some geologists consider it to be Earth's eighth continent. It's no different from all the other continents, except 90% of it is below the ocean. A minor inconvenience. New Zealand and New Caledonia make up the main land masses that are above water, but Norfolk is part of the family too. As we shall see, this may explain why a lot of the birds that live on Norfolk are more closely related to their New Zealand cousins than they are to their Australian cousins. Plate tectonics, it's a whole thing! Broadly speaking, Norfolk isn't that big. It's about 5 kilometres wide and 8 kilometres long, with a total land area of just 34 square kilometres. The island itself was formed by volcanic activity around 2 to 3 million years ago. It's just a bear bear! By geologic measures. The island has a curious colonial history. It was used as a penal settlement for convicts on two separate occasions during the 19th century, but in 1856, it was settled by a group of people from the Pitcairn Islands, who were largely descendants of the crew from the Bounty, those treacherous sailors who mutinied Captain Bly in 1789. 
a fascinating story in its own right, but we're not here to talk about that today. Now, as you will remember from our previous episodes, islands really punch above their weight when it comes to biodiversity. On Earth, islands only make up about 6-7% of our total land area, and yet they contain something like 20% of Earth's biodiversity. And this is because islands are little laboratories where evolution can play out. They hold very specific, very contained, very isolated environments. They usually don't have predators because mammals have a hard time getting to islands. And they have specific food, weather, and resources. Basically, they've got a whole bunch of empty niches, 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 that generalists usually occupy on the mainland but are available on islands. Now, an animal that's a generalist is one that can easily adapt to many conditions. They can be successful in multiple environments and exploit different resources. Think ravens, pigeons, sparrows, all great generalist birds. A specialist species, on the other hand, is one that has evolved to exploit one specific set of circumstances, but do it really well. On islands, we tend to see more specialist species. But it is important to remember that because specialists rely on specific conditions to survive, if those conditions get changed, they may not have a good time. They're not adaptable like a generalist. More on that idea in a minute. But what this means is if plants or insects or birds can make it to an island over millions of years in isolation, they will go down their own evolutionary roads. They will specialize until they become totally distinct from their mainland relatives. And this is why islands boast such rich biodiversity, because each one represents a new opportunity for new species to arise. We can actually see a nice example of this happening in real time on Norfolk Island. One of Norfolk's native birds is the slender-billed white-eye. They found their way onto the island millions of years ago, but their closest mainland relative is the silver-eye. Superficially, the birds look remarkably similar. They're both olive green and grey, and are both members of a very large family of birds known as white-eyes, which have a broad distribution from Africa, through Asia, and into Australia. Their most distinguishing feature is a striking ring of bright white feathers that encircles their eyes, hence the name white-eye. But if you were to look closely at the silver-eye and the slender-billed white-eye, you would see one of the physical differences that marks the slender-bill as a unique species. You see, the silver-eye has a short, sharp beak, while the slender-bill has a long, more curved one. On the mainland, silver eyes are great generalist birds. They feed on a wide variety of insects, fruit and nectar all across the tropics of far north Queensland, down in Tasmania, and all the way across the country to Perth. That takes in a lot of different environments. A short, sharp beak like this is a hallmark of a generalist bird. It's something all-purpose that can be useful in many situations. Meanwhile, our species that ended up on Norfolk has evolved. It has changed. Its beak has become longer and more slender, designed to be more effective with the specific plants it finds on the island. The slender bill has become more of a specialist species, and this is typical 
of what happens to birds when they find their way onto islands and are given millions of years to adapt to the unique conditions. The birds of the Galapagos and Hawaii are usually pushed forward as the poster children for this phenomenon, but it happens everywhere. You have unique conditions, you get unique birds. Now, across the rest of Norfolk, excluding the seabirds, there are about 20 or so other native birds. They've got cormorants, rails, swamp hens, doves, kestrels, swallows, migratory cuckoos, all birds we would be familiar with on mainland Australia. But the special birds, the really special birds, are the ones that are endemic to Norfolk Island, the ones that are found nowhere else in the world. Now, Norfolk has seven birds that are both endemic and extent. Extent is one of those fancy words. It means the opposite of extinct, so birds that are still around today. And we'll come back to the extinction question in a minute. But who are these birds, these magnificent seven? They are the Norfolk Gerrigon, the Norfolk Golden Whistler, Norfolk Grey Fantail, the Sacred Kingfisher, our old friend, the Slenderbilled Whiteye, and the two most famous, the Green Parrot and the Norfolk Moorpock Owl. Now, depending on who you talk to, there will be some disagreement as to if some of these birds should be treated as subspecies or unique species, but that is murky territory to wade into. If it is something you're interested in, then go back and listen to episode 11, How Many Birds Are There, when I do a deep dive on the subject. But let's leave that to one side and just say for simplicity's sake that there are seven birds and they are all their own species, okay? Okay. So anyway, that's all well and good, but while islands do hold a lot of the world's biodiversity, they are also the places where we see the worst rates of extinction. Currently, 50% of the world's threatened species live on islands. And since European colonisation, 75% of all extinctions worldwide have happened on islands. Now, there are reasons for this. Islands tend to be small, so unique animals living on those islands also tend to have small populations to begin with. Islands tend to be isolated, so if anything happens to their environment, most species don't have the option to move to a new area. And their habitats also tend to be susceptible to introduced species mucking things up. As I said at the start, a lot of islands are predator-free, so native animals don't usually have any survival mechanisms to cope with threats. A lot of animals will have what is termed island tameness. They won't have a fear response to new animals, so they can make for really easy dinners if a predator does get on the island. But invasive animals that we would think of as being more benign can also be a big problem on islands. This is why possums in New Zealand have been such troublemakers. They may not kill other animals, but they are better generalists, so they can monopolise resources that more specialist animals rely on. Basically, outcompete them and kill them off that way. And this has happened on Norfolk Island with the introduction of the Crimson Rosella. On the mainland, they're lovely bright red parrots. But on Norfolk, they compete with other birds for nesting sites. A little more on that in a minute. But the point is that islands are delicate environments, and it doesn't take much to put pressure on the animals that live there. And Norfolk's birds have not been immune to change. Since humans first arrived, at least eight birds that were unique to the island have gone extinct. And of the seven that remain, three are either classified as vulnerable or endangered. 
So since colonisation, Norfolk has lost more than half of its endemic birds, which is a real shame. And there are multiple factors for this, including hunting by early settlers, land clearing, the introduction of invasive pests like cats and rats, not to mention that pesky rosella. But what that means is today significant conservation efforts are going on to stop two species from going the same way. The first is the Moorpok owl, so named because of the call it makes. Apparently it sounds like someone requesting an extra slice of pork. And who could blame it? The swine is delicious. Roll the audio! Now, these owls are close relatives to the boo-book owls of Australia and New Zealand. But on Norfolk, they suffered greatly when humans settled the land. It has suffered from deforestation, a loss of natural nesting sites, and a certain bushy rosella that muscles into the remaining hollows. But the situation for the owl became extremely dire. In 1986, without a question, the Norfolk moorpork was the rarest bird in the world when the population was reduced to a single female. Normally that situation would mean the end of a species. This is what we would technically call functionally extinct, where the species still lives, but has no way to reproduce. But for the moorpork, a last-ditch effort was made to preserve at least a vestige of the species. After genetic testing, it was found that the New Zealand moorpork was its closest living relative. So they brought a few males from New Zealand in the hope that the two would interbreed, and indeed, they did. From those two birds, a new population of hybrids were born, and today there are some 30 to 40 that still call the island home. This is also the only example where a species is still considered to exist, even though all of the individuals are hybrids. But even though the species has been saved for now, there are still other problems. Every living owl today is very inbred. This means there is almost no genetic diversity within the population. They're basically an avian family of Habsburgs, and one of the problems that can arise over generations of inbreeding is that fertility rates start to drop. Between 2012 and 2018, no chicks were born on Norfolk. In 2019, there was great excitement when for the first time, two new birds were hatched. Then, a study from June of 2021 found one failed nesting attempt in 2020, but beyond that, I don't know if there have been any other successes since 2019. What the solution to preserve the moorpork is, I don't know, short of introducing some new birds from New Zealand to give the population some genetic diversity. But while the story of the moorpork is still up in the air, we have seen greater success with Norfolk's other famous bird, the green parrot. This is a handsome green guy with a slice of blue on their wing and a little red crown on their head. They're closely related to the red-crowned parakeet of New Zealand. Now, they've also suffered from all the same factors that the owl has. Cats and rats in particular raid their nests, eat their eggs and kill the sitting parent and any chicks. But the green parrot has another threat on top of all of these, and that is the dastardly crimson rosella again. These beautiful parrots outcompete them for nesting hollows. It has even been recorded that the rosellas will smash their eggs and bully the green parrots out of their nest. All of these factors had a compounding effect. 
Just in 2013, it was estimated that their population was as low as 46 birds, just 10 of which were breeding females, making them, again at the time, one of the rarest birds in the world. Drastic action was taken to establish protected nesting sites to keep the cats and rats out of the nests. And the good news is that they've had some success with these measures. The population recovered to over 300 birds by 2017. A survey conducted in 2021 also found that there was a high proportion of unbanded birds getting around, which was a great sign. Every chick born in the specially protected nesting sites are banded before they fledge. That there is a high proportion of unbanded birds suggests that there must be successful breeding sites in natural hollows that the researchers weren't aware of. Until this 2021 survey, it was suspected that all natural nesting sites were failing because of predation. But this shows that the birds are hopefully on a more sure road to recovery. They still have a ways to go, but the signs look good. Which means, thankfully, I can end this talk on a bit of a high note. As with so many islands, Norfolk serves as a case study for how delicate island environments can be. And it is also important to remember that when we look at case studies like these, they are a microcosm of what is happening to the Earth as a whole, which is itself a tiny island of life, cast in a large expanse of emptiness. But we don't need to get into that today. At any rate, that is a brief introduction to the birds of Norfolk. If you have any questions, I'm happy to attempt to answer them now. Oh, oh, wait, you can't physically ask me any questions because this is a pre-recorded thing. Probably should have taken that bit out as well. Yeah, it's fine. You can email me if you want. Now, next time I'm going to bring... You know what? I am tired of making predictions about future episodes that never come true. So next time, who knows what it'll be about? You'll have to tune in to find out. I mean, it'll probably be about birds. Now, if you still want some more bird action, I've got some good news. Our bonus podcast called What's Up With That Bird's Name has just come out, and this week it is all about the morning dove. Is this a bird that only flies around at the crack of dawn, or is this a bird that grieves for its dead? Well, for the low, low price of just $2 a month, you can find out all about it. All you need to do is swing on over to Patreon forward slash bird of the week, all one word, link in the description to find out more. And if you're feeling especially generous and want to make a bigger contribution, then you too can get a special thank you from me in the show, just like my good friends Jill Chalker, Jody Little, Debbie Hode, and Richard Clark, the Minty Fresh. And as always, if you'd like to receive a bird in your inbox each week, then drop me a line at weekly.bird at outlook.com, and I'll add you to the mailing list where you will get a new bird lovingly delivered to you for free each and every week. And I mean, hey, who doesn't want more birds in their inbox? At any rate, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in again next time. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. It's like I always say, the only thing better than pork is more pork. Mmm, avian pork Habsburg.